everyone. I am C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm speaking with Heather Webb, who with Hazel Gaynor is the co-author of Last Christmas in Paris, a novel of World War I. The book consists mostly of letters ranging from the first declaration of war in 1914 through Armistice Day on November 11, 1918. Many of the letters come from Thomas Harding, a British soldier, as he struggles to adapt to life on the Western Front. Just as prolific as his friend Evelyn Elliot, better known as Evie. But the book opens with Tom in old age. Richmond, London, 15th December, 1968. Life is forever changed without her, without the sense of her somewhere near. Empty hours wander by as I listen for the soft tread of her footfall on the stair and wait for her laughter to cheer these lifeless rooms. When I close my eyes, I can conjure her, the scent of her perfume, the feathered touch of her fingertips against my cheek, those intense blue eyes looking back at me. But it is all illusion, smoke and mirrors that conceal the truth of her absence. I push myself up wearily from the chair, clutching my cane like an extra limb as I hobble to the window. Snow sprinkles from a soft gray sky, gathering in pockets along the river, quick to find shelter from the hungry waters of the Thames that flood the inlet behind the house. A skiff bobs to the gentle rhythm of the tide. It reminds me of how I rode with such vigor as a young man, desperate to impress. I see her there still, sitting on the river bank, skirt tucked behind her knees, laughing as she launches a stone and watches it sail higher and farther than the others looping in a great arc and splashing me with its perfectly aimed descent into the water. I see her everywhere, in everything. How can she not be here? And now, please join me in welcoming Heather Webb. Hi, Heather. I look forward to talking with you today. Hi, Carolyn. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. So, at an earlier point in your life, you taught high school students. How did you get started writing fiction? That's a good question. Um, Yeah, I I went to school for French education and taught high school French uh, for almost a decade. And when I got pregnant with my second child, I decided to resign, um, stay home to raise them. But also it was more expensive to put children in daycare than it was to uh, and work than it was to stay home. So it was a very easy decision that way for me. And from there, I started having dreams about Josephine Bonaparte, believe it or not. And I, I knew very little about this woman. You know, I had, I had an idea of the French Revolution after having read about it and, and taught, you know, kind of a smaller unit um, at the high school to my students. But yeah, she just appeared to me in a dream. So I went and checked out a book um, a biography from the library and I was off and running (laughs) she had such a a tumultuous life that I fell in love with with her story and I just turned to my husband went I'm gonna write a book and he just looked at me like I was from another planet and said all right good luck with that and and that was it. And, it and one thing after another you know I really fell in love with the writing process and of course the research is such a joy for me as well but it's funny when I look back at my life, I realized that I was a writer all along. You know, I was copy editor of my high school paper and my college paper, and I won several essay contests, and I was always carrying books around with me, really enjoyed writing and reading. Um, I always had a journal, but I never considered myself a writer, so it kind of found me a little bit later. That's really interesting. So, yeah. 
And how did you get to, from that first step, deciding to write a book, to getting published by Random House? Well, you know, uh, any writer will tell you it's kind of a, a trying and lengthy process. It took me about two and a half years to finish the book. Um, I had a toddler and an infant at the time, so it took some time. And then I just started going to writing conferences and meeting other writers. And um, I'll tell you, that first one I went to, I felt like a imposter that I shouldn't be there and that I had no business being there. I wasn't even finished with my first draft at that point, but I'd had a friend who'd finished a book who I used to teach with say to me, you really should go to one and, and learn about everything, you know, about the industry and about craft. And I kind of got hooked on them and just uh, kept going and, and considered them to be sort of my education about publishing, about this whole other industry. And, uh, I ended up meeting my agent at a conference actually. So, you know, there were several trials of sending out query letters and rejections and, um, you know, things like that. Rounds of edits, new critique partners, you know, all that kind of thing. But after I met my agent, we did one round of revisions and, uh, sold the book in five weeks. So it was, it was very quick. Wow. That's very impressive. So that part was, that part was great. Yes. <laughs> that part was great. I mean, it, it, you know, you're on submission waiting to hear back from the publishing houses. It's a really difficult time. It's hard to focus. You're really nervous. You have all of this hope and all of this anxiety. It's, it's kind of wonderful and terrible at the same time. So. So um, tell us a little it. bit about becoming Josephine. You, I mean, that's a great story that you started having dreams about her. But tell us a little bit about the book. So the book chronicles her um, life from the time she's about 15 and lives on a sugar plantation in Martinique and uh, goes from there through her life as a young mother uh, married to an aristocrat who could not stand her, actually. They didn't get along at all. Uh, and up through the French Revolution before she meets Napoleon. So she actually meets Napoleon after a stint in jail, believe it or not, and after she'd already been through so much um, tumultuous upheaval in the city of Paris. Yeah, and so it follows her life there uh, up through her, her the end of her marriage with Napoleon. And you went from there to Camille Claudel, um, who, as your title notes, was Rodin's lover. But she was also a talented sculptor in her own right, um, if not perhaps the most balanced person, at least in your portrayal. Definitely not the most balanced. Yeah. You know, so I skipped ahead 100 years in time or so, you know, a little less. And at that point, I was thinking, I really loved writing about this woman that was so influential and significant in French history. And again, you know, my background was, was French culture and history. So I was, you know, sort of racking my brain thinking about who else would I like to write about? And I kept running into renditions of the thinker all over the place. And I just thought, I remember this movie I'd seen in one of my college classes, just it's called Camille Claudel. And it's a brilliant film. It's from, I want to say the late 80s, like 1988, 1989. And it won all kinds of awards. Uh, and, and it's just a really beautiful film. So I thought, I'm going to rewatch that. And I did. And I cried again. And I loved it and thought, I love this woman. I love their works. They're, they're, it's tragic. It's, they're beautiful. They're artists. Uh, and so... I was off and running on that. You know, I got sucked in right away. So 
Um, it's funny. It was very popular at the time to write about the women, you know, the wives of famous men, so to speak. Um, but I didn't actually set out to do that at all. That wasn't my intent. So, you know, I had that first book about Josephine and then about Camille Claudel because I was so impressed by and fascinated with these women, not because of who they were married to. And in fact, I didn't find out about them because of who they were married to either. So it's interesting that, that I was sort of swept up in that wave. Uh, but I also knew from there I wanted to explore different kinds of fiction and not just, you know, sort of write in the biographical historical vein. Yeah, I noticed that you did, you have since moved on to entirely fictional characters. What's the difference in writing about them versus people who have, uh, you know, real lives and real histories? Does it make a difference to you as a writer? Oh, very much so. First of all, when you have someone's life that has already been lived, you know, you look at the trajectory of their life and, and you can set up sort of a an outline of um, events you want to cover. The, the most difficult thing, so you have this, you know, you sort of have a prefabricated outline. So in that essence, it's it's much easier than writing a story that doesn't have that sort of built-in backbone. On the other hand, it's it's very challenging and difficult for other reasons. You know, if this person isn't someone who does all the right things, which who does really, right? Right. But does some, some despicable things or some things that might be difficult for people to get behind, a reader to get behind. Your challenge as a writer is to find a way to highlight their likable traits and balance them with the, the unlikable traits. So Camille Claudel posed um, that problem quite a bit because she had schizophrenia. And so she sort of, um, or at least this is what they they think. Uh, so she sort of devolves over time, and um, she had fits of, of rage and could be very brash and push people away from her. Um, very uh, passionate, sort of violent temperament in terms of, you know, what we would consider an artist. It feels very stereotypical for an artist, doesn't it, to some degree. But so I had to figure out ways to bring out and highlight what was sympathetic about her, what was likable about her. Um, and so in that way, biographical fiction can be really challenging. Yeah, that does sound uh, difficult. Yeah, it would be difficult it, it to, is. you know, it, unless you're happy with the kind of negative character arc, um, it would be hard to find a, a positive story inside someone who is suffering from that level of psychological problems. Yes, and so what I wanted to focus on was, um, first of all, her brilliance. She was incredibly brilliant, and so was Rodin. They both were, and they fed off of each other for inspiration, as artists and writers and you know other creative types often do. And uh, so I, I wanted to highlight both of their, their, their brilliant minds, their passion for each other. Um, everybody loves a good love story, especially a good tragic love story, or at least I do. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I also wanted to, um, highlight her struggle in a male dominated art world. I wanted to show how much we have overcome today because of people like her. And, um, and ultimately I feel like the book still has a, a pretty positive message and, ha and is, is, has resolution, and which is, 
that they're the beauty that they created lives on after them and has changed the world for the better. So um, I think that the book still really has a hopeful message overall, despite, you know, her tragic arc. That's interesting. Uh, I think I uh, inadvertently interrupted you. Were you about to say something about Josephine before I asked the last question? Oh, yeah. So Josephine, you know, she was no saint either. She was kind of known to be, you know, she wept a lot. And so a lot of people portrayed her as just being this sort of weak um, victim of her times. Uh, And, uh, you know, she, she used men in her life to, for stability and, you know, had a lot of lovers. And so she was, she's portrayed as sort of this simpering user victim in many different books, uh, which I find (laughs) funny. Okay, sure. That could be one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is she was with many of these men because there was no other means for her to survive during incredibly volatile time. And she had two children that she loved more than anything. So she did what she had to do. The other thing is she was a really uh, smart businesswoman and uh, unfortunately got involved with a couple of men that were actually scamming the, the army and, and, and all that. But, uh, she made a whole lot of money and was great at making contacts with people. She was very good with people at reading them at, um, you know, sort of work in the scene. So she had a lot of really great qualities. Uh, she was very generous. She gave away hundreds of thousands of francs to orphans and all kinds of stuff. So, again, here's that balance between, you know, the good and the bad with a, a real character who lived. It's, that's the challenging part. But so, also, it's, I, was, I mean, she also was affected by attitudes towards women at the time. You know, I mean, there were so many things women couldn't do. There was a, even now, powerful women tend to be... Um, maligned in lots of different ways, accused of sexual misconduct and, you know, they're, they frown, they're, you know, horrible. And if they smile, they're careless and all this kind of thing. And I think Josephine in particular, yeah, really went through a lot of that from, from what I know about her. Yes. I mean, she was accused of orgies and all kinds of stuff. Uh, Now, granted, there was a lot of, um, what we would consider, I guess, sexual deviant behavior happening right after uh, Rose Pierre fell. And that has so much to do with they had been living in sort of under house arrest for five years. Um, and uh, it, it was um, it was it was quite a thing when that part of the radical part of the government shifted again and they had they could all breathe. The whole city could just you know, take a breath and look at all the senseless acts of violence that were happening and everything they lost. And it was like, we're alive. We want to celebrate being alive. And so there was a lot of debauchery and uh, all that kind of stuff happening. And it, and it wasn't just her, you know, it was, it was literally everyone. So, um, yeah, but she, she was very much a victim of, of, of all of that prejudice, as you say. So speaking of senseless violence, this brings us to World War One, which is your next project. Um, and actually, nice where segue. I encountered you, <laughs> thank you. Um, you edited a collection called "Fall of Poppies: um, Stories of Love yeah. and the Great War." Um, 
And people who want to know more about it can go to my blog because we ended up doing a, a written Q&A rather than um, an interview like this, uh, although I really enjoyed that collection as well, and I'm delighted to have a chance to talk to you now. So just tell me a little, tell us a little bit about that project, how it got started, and, um, and what made you want to put it together. I, you know, as much as I enjoy enjoyed learning about the French Revolution, and it's certainly a love of mine, I would say my sweet spot in history in terms of what I just really like to dig into and spend a lot of time on is probably somewhere between, I don't know, 1850 and the end of World War One. And World War One, you know, that Edwardian era, 1900 up through 1925, 1920-ish, uh, in particular is, is just a time that, that I love, that I'm very fascinated by, um, because of the, you know, so much that happened in history then, um, on all levels. Uh, but so, you know, I was watching Downton Abbey, loving it. A lot of books came out set in the Edwardian era, and I was just sort of gobbling them all up. And, um, I thought, what if we did a short story collection with a bunch of different authors who write during this time period and give, you know, and I create some sort of focused topic around World War One. There had just been an anthology um, called Grand Central that was World War Two focused. And I thought, World War Two gets all of the press. It gets all of the, the attention. And uh, there's, you know, there's so much to World War One that gets overlooked. And, and put on the back burner at such a fascinating and horrific time. So I thought, I, I kind of brainstormed and came up with, with one other author, Jessica Brockmall. She actually submitted a, a story for that anthology. Um, and we were brainstorming topics and uh, came up with Armistice Day, the original, um, 11-11 at 11 a.m., 1918, and how arbitrary that time was. It just they ran picked this this random day at this random time to say, okay, that's it, war's over. Throw in your guns. Um, and so I I came up with a title and wanted each story to either lead up to the Armistice Day or to begin on Armistice Day, um, and somehow have a poppy littered through it. So that was sort of the the theme. And and my agent loved the idea and took it out and we sold it very quickly. And um, it, that was great fun to work with those girls. Um, all of us together. Um, <clears throat> but a lot of work because, you know, you're corralling a whole bunch of agents and, and you know, nine different contracts and all that good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and nine so different authors. Very tricky. <laughs> yeah. And I was, you know, because it was my project, it was, um, you know, I was sort of the one who had to deal with all that stuff. And, and as a former teacher and a, one of the few extroverts in the, in the writing world, I think that, um, it was kind of, you know, I like that kind of thing. So it worked out. It was, it was, it was good fun. That's and then from there, you know, Hazel as one of the contributors to the anthology, we hit it off really well. She, um, she has the same agent as me and we had a debut novel release a month apart. So we had sort of connected that way. And after the, the fall of poppies was in motion, she contacted me and said, Hey, I've always wanted to do a Christmas book. What do you think about getting the same group of authors together and doing a Christmas anthology? Also set maybe during that time, or maybe we could do World War II, or we could do, you know. And I just said, you know, that was a whole lot of work. And what about if we did a co-novel instead? 
And she said, yes. And then I said, definitely World War One, since I feel like there's so much more to dig into. And she completely agreed. You know, she has her latest novels also set during that era. So, yeah, the, the idea for Last Christmas in Paris just sort of evolved from that. We knew we wanted the story to be framed by the five Christmases of World War One, And then... Uh, from there, we just we chose a couple of characters, and the story really kind of evolved naturally from there. Our agent loved it again. We just we wrote up you know a proposal, some sample pages, and sold it on spec. Uh, I'm sorry, not on spec. Sold it on uh, proposal. So so that was that was great. And we were under deadline, working like mad from across the Atlantic. Yes, that's one of my questions. I should briefly mention um, for my listeners that because Hazel isn't here, uh, we were trying to do a joint interview in October, which would have been wonderful, but it just didn't work out in terms of the timing. So she has uh, two novels, uh, The Girl Who Came Home, a novel of the Titanic and A Memory of Violets uh, that were set in 1912. Um, Then she moved on to The Girl from the Savoy, which I read and loved and I, again, did a blog interview with her about that. Uh, you mentioned she's in Fall of Poppies, and she also has a book called The Cottingley Secret about uh, the little girls who claimed they saw fairies in their backyard and convinced Arthur Conan Doyle that they were, tr- you know, that they were right about that. Um, so, and as you mentioned, you live on different content- continents. She's in Ireland. How did you? handle co-writing just from a practical perspective who did what so we use google documents which for anyone who isn't familiar with that it's uh, a document that allows you to through the internet that allows more than one person to be writing on the same document at the same time Um, any changes she made um, google doc keeps track of and i can immediately click a button and see everything that she's changed vice versa we can leave comment bubbles and they go right to our email and they also are on the document itself. So we worked that way because we thought the last thing we want to do is to send back and forth a hundred copies, word document copies to each other, emailing. What a pain. So we, um, the only thing about Google Docs is it becomes un- unruly once you have a whole lot of pages. So we ended up working with it in sections, but um, she would wake up in Ireland write some letters um, and I would wake up in the morning five hours later in the U.S. and have mail in my inbox. Literal letters because the, the the book is written in the epistolary style. So it's about 95% letters and telegrams. And, and we, we chose that because we wanted to make it authentic to the World War One era and how a soldier at the front would communicate with friends and loved ones back home. We really wanted to, to recreate that sensibility uh, as well as create a really intimate story, an intimate look at what it was like to be both at home and on the front lines. Um, <clears throat> so I, it, it, was, it was really fun, actually, because I would wake up and literally have mail waiting for me from 1914 in my inbox. Uh, and, and Hazel loved it, too. You know, she'd, she'd have mail for me by late afternoon her time so or early evening so, so you didn't it was, divvy it it up was very organic all. that mm-hmm. way you didn't What's divvy that? up you didn't divvy up the characters or anything you you literally both worked on every letter so we did divvy up the characters to start just for the drafting and then for the editing 
we set up a system where um, it was a little bit like uh, uh, it was pretty intense, the editing, because we, we both really wanted to shape all of the characters and, and touch every single page. Um, but for the first round, um, she wrote Evie and Evie's columns, and I wrote um, Tom and uh, Alice and uh, a couple of the other smaller parts, like the father and the Mr. Abster and those people. Um, and then, um, and like I said, after that, we we both edited everything and touched everything. So, you know, I worked on Evie just as much as she worked on Tom. So. So tell us about Tom. Let's start with him. Uh, what kind of person is he? What kind of character is he? Um, how did you create him? This is going to sound weird, but this story feels like one of those things that was that already existed in time that we sort of lassoed and, and pulled in and sort of portrayed through our through our own mouthpieces. <laughs> it sounds really strange, but uh, I think any writer can relate to that on some level. Um, this story in particular though, felt that way for me. And so I felt like he was already there. And so when I would sit down to write his parts, I, it was almost like he was telling me who he was as I would write these letters. Um, I knew I wanted him to be a scholar because I wanted him to do something that his father would be like, you know, that's a waste of time. I need you to come work on the family business and so on. Uh, so um, I knew I wanted him to be a scholar and I knew I wanted honor to be important to him um, because many, many military men, this is, this is why they join the service is because they believe in, they love their loved ones. They want to protect them. They believe in their, in, in their country and they, and they believe in honor. And so I really wanted him to possess those qualities as well. Uh, yeah. So the other piece is just that he, <laughs> this is a funny conversation that, that Hazel and I had. I said, you know, there's a stereotype in the U S that British men are pretty stoic. You know, they're not particularly touchy feely. They don't, you know, express themselves emotionally and so on. And I said, is that true? And she said, absolutely. It's completely true. So there were times when I wanted him to say so much more, but I had to reel it in because I thought he wouldn't say that. Tom wouldn't say that, especially mm -hmm. in a letter to a friend. And so that was that was an interesting exercise for me. So why did you decide to begin um, at the end, in effect, um, in 1968, and then go back to the beginning? You know, we hadn't originally planned that. We were just going to do, start with the letters and go from there. And we wrote about 50 pages and sent it to our agent. And it was our agent that said, you know, it might have more impact if you think about someone who's looking back at their life. And so we kind of tossed around a few ideas <clears throat> and then we decided, yeah, we like this. We like old man Tom looking back and we could create a sense of mystery that way. What's the, what happens? What happens to them? Yeah, um, it's very effective. On a, on a, yeah. So it worked well. I'm really, I'm really psyched that it, it ended up working well. Thank you. Um, but, you know, that wasn't, we didn't go into it thinking that we thought we don't need that. We already have war. We already have. 
you know, people are, someone's going to die. People are going to die. We're not sure, you know, there's someone's going to get really sick and almost die. That'll be enough. But then, um, no, we decided to go ahead and give it a try and it, and it ended up working really, really nicely. So we were pleased with how that happened. And that's where the last came in. It was Christmas in Paris. And then we ch- and then what's so funny is we had just we were just about to submit the proposal to the editor and then Anita Hughes sold a women's fiction it's kind of a it's uh like a light christmas romance novel called Christmas in Paris and we were like no like the week before no she got a title but that's when we had decided to put old man tom in and said no but ours is last christmas in paris and so it distinguished it from you know, from her novel too. So at least it was Isn't the week funny before, not the week after. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, publishers change titles a lot anyway. But yeah, for, they do. For this, That's true. Just, I haven't had them do that to me actually, but but I see them do it quite quite often um, so, for marketing purposes. You yeah. know, it's, it's I mean, it really does book. work emotionally. I think it gives the whole story a, a frame that you you know from the beginning that. There's some very significant relationship. I'll, I'll say just that, and you don't know, you don't really know until almost the end exactly how it's going to work out, how they're going to get there. Um, and it does, you know. And there's this poignancy that comes from from knowing that he's old and he's looking back and he's lost someone he cares about and so on. Thank you. Yeah, we we um, I'll tell you, there were a lot of tears shed writing this book. I, you know, every single draft, I cried at certain spots in this book. <laughs> well, I teared up reading I, it too. I did. <laughs> oh, good! Yay! Mission accomplished. That's that's what we're going for. Yeah, I and um, it was uh, it, it was emotional for me, not just because I love the characters and they felt real to me. They felt like friends, and because it, it these things really happened quite often for real in history. Um. But also because my dad's retired, he's retired colonel in uh, the Air Force, and I don't know, I have a special place in my heart for the military. And um, you know, he was in Desert Desert Storm at a classified location out in the middle of the desert in Saudi Arabia, and uh, came home with a bit of PTSD himself from um, some of the things that happened out there that, of course, they can't talk about. So, yeah, I just it really. It really touched me on a lot of levels to be living inside of a military man's head. So talk to us about Evie. Um, she's not the only correspondent besides Tom, but she's definitely the most important. She's the the, the other major character in the book. Mm-hmm. So tell us about her as a person. Her up to... Yeah, okay, so we, we wanted to kind of set her up as the really kind of the main character. I mean, it's definitely the two of them, but, um, you know, our, our readers are primarily female, although we have, we do have male readers. And, and frankly, this book, we've had quite a lot of male readers who've been really, really pleased with the book too, which has been nice. Um, and I think the war element is what draws them in. And the fact that there's a male protagonist as well. Um, but uh, Evie is a, She's a, a privileged young woman. I was going to say spoiled, but she's not spoiled by nature. She's privileged. Uh, lives in a you know really really nice part of uh, suburb of London. Um, 
and, uh, you know, has, has a mother that expects things to be just so all the time and has expectations of Evie as well to, you know, be on her best behavior, looking for marriage, a, a well-suited marriage and that kind of thing. And when the war strikes, Evie watches her brother and um, his best friend, Tom, our other character, go off to war. So, uh, you know, increasingly throughout the book, we wanted to show her change. We wanted to show her go from this sheltered place to um, kind of go on a quest to find uh, her own sense of bravery and courage and uh, find a place where she could contribute to the war in a way that was meaningful to her. So combining that with her dream of having wanted to be a writer, a journalist, essentially, um, uh, we did that. We set her on that path. It also enabled us to create some conflict between Thomas's family, who owned uh, the the newspaper where she worked. Um, and, and so that's Evie. She's funny. She's uplifting. She's encouraging. Um, She's full of full of hope and optimism, and we needed a character that helped lighten the burden of the war. So there are quite a lot of topics associated with the war that you managed to cover through these letters and through Evie's columns. You know, um, you mentioned PTSD, which was called shell shock at the time. Um, there's the change in women's lives that came about because the men were going to war. There's um, trench warfare, uh, depression among the troops, uh, censorship <laughs> of the male and the press, um, the prejudice against men who refused to fight, even the influenza epidemic of 1918. And so the book has a very... Um, complete feel to it you know i don't want to mean suggest in any way that um these things stick out i mean that that's really interesting is the way that you managed to pull them in and make them part of the larger story but how did you decide which topics to include and which would be a bridge too far and that you know that's that is the question. There's uh, the thing about 1900 on, especially about 1910 and on to the present. There's so much information available. It's not like the French Revolution where there's you know there's plenty of scholarly work about it, but there's a lot they don't know, um, and a lot that you, a lot of gaps you fill in. Of course, the further back in history you go. So every single thing was documented about World War One. So we needed to spend a lot of time really, really digging into the most important, what we thought were the most important topics. And and sometimes that happened just while, while we were writing the letter and go, Hmm, I need to talk about a new aspect of, of what was happening at the front. So I would, you know, I would stop and spend a few days just reading like crazy and I'd stumble upon something that would really stick out. And I would, weave it into his, you know, one of Thomas's letters. Same thing happened with Evie, you know, with, with Hazel and, and those parts. Um, but in terms of what not to include, you know, I think that comes with practice at the end of the day. I think a historical novelist, our challenge is to um, tell a great story um, 
teach the reader something and not let the narrative get bogged down with too much information, information dump to where it all of a sudden turns into more of a nonfiction piece than a fictional piece. Um, and so I think, you know, Hazel having written several books and, and I having written several books and, um, you know, spent, I'm an editor too. So I spend a lot of time working on novels. Um, you learn how to sort of parse out what's important and, and what just is filler and bogs down the narrative. So if it didn't somehow directly relate to something that happened to Evie or to Thomas or to one of their friends in their immediate circle, uh, or family members, then we would take it out. So a few of the things were just too interesting. And we thought, people don't really know this about World War One, or at least maybe they do, but they don't talk about it. You don't ever see it in, in movies or in books, so let's add that in. The White Feather Brigade, for example. I hadn't heard anything about that. So we had, you know, we decided that that would be a really fascinating thing to weave in. Um, the same thing with the rum rations at the front, I didn't realize they were giving them rum rations uh, or something that resembled rum, I suppose. You know, things like that. I, why would you give soldiers a ration of alcohol? That doesn't seem like a good idea to us now. But at the time, you know, they didn't really understand alcoholism or any of that. They just knew that the alcohol would numb their nerves a bit. Um, also got a lot of people killed. But... Um, yeah, so there are there are these bits that would just sort of stick out that I had never seen before or heard before. The same happened with Hazel. So we wanted to make sure that we included those. I think it is true, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, that fortunately, there's been some uh, greater interest in World War One because of the centennial, but it's so dwarfed by World War Two that there are many things like that that people really don't know about or even learn about it in school, you know? Art, we used to skip up. When I think back to my schooling, we would practically fast forward from the Civil War to World War II. We talked about very little between between there. Um, and I think, I think that's for a few reasons. I think, first of all, that horrific genocide that happened to innocent people. I mean, that really makes it um, an impactful point to study about. Uh, so that was really wretched. But also, I think many people still have relatives that either fought in the war or were the brother of or the, you know, the nephew of or and so on. So we're, we're it's still fairly close in our collective memories um, as a society. So, yeah, I think that that's that's a big part of why World War Two is focused upon. But also, you can really pinpoint a time when World War II began and why it began. World War I is so much more nebulous. How did it begin and why? So someone was assassinated in Austria, and why did France and Germany go to war? Why was the U.S. involved in that? I don't understand that. You know, why, why was England involved? It's, you know, and, then, and then on to the Eastern Front. It becomes a, it's, it's a huge question, and I think that it's not easy for sort of your average person to grasp. They'd have to spend some, some real time reading and researching to understand that. And I think that that's part of the reason why, too. I, I agree. I think it's also World War I is much more morally ambivalent, whereas World War II is it's a better story in the sense that there's a clear bad guy, right? And a clear yeah. horror uh, 
to the mission. I mean, th- there was horror in World War One as well, and but in a sense, it's a kind of disappointing war because it was supposed to end all wars and it didn't. And so, I think there's this tendency to see it as a kind of precursor to World War Two, rather it than absolutely was. Yeah, yeah. it was yeah. In, in a very real sense, and so. People tend to go in part for what they remember or their parents remember, or these days it's more like their grandparents. But in part, it's maybe more comfortable because you can just say, well, that was wrong, you know, and yes, and I would yes. never do that, lot, right? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I mean, in terms of, you know, wow, World War One really kick-started the feminist movement that had been in very slow progression for 100 years, 150 years, really kick-started it, and it completely deconstructed the class system, and it brought about loads of inventions, and uh, it, it, even in warfare, not never mind in the home, you know, the telephone and so on, um, but also uh, the tanks, the first tanks, the first warplanes, the first chemical warfare, I mean, just unbelievable amounts of, of inventions and technology advancements during the World War One era. So, um, so much happening. And, and that's, this is why I really like to dig into this period because it's, it's rich with, with story. So speaking of story, before I let you go, we should talk a little bit about Will and Alice, I think. Um, can you tell us? I'm not sure if you can really tell us what Will's part in the story is because it's so vital to the plot. But <laughs> it is. I can't say too much. Right. But you could talk a little bit about them, um, what what they're doing there, other than, you know, the the vital to the plot part. <laughs> so they were very fun to write. I think um, I think Hazel would agree that they, you know, um, Alice, you know, first of all, Alice is Evie's best friend and she kind of came to me two thirds of the way through the first draft. She just popped in. I ended up doing a lot of the smaller pieces because Evie, both with her uh, sort of almost as the central figure and the columns, um, that was a lot more writing for Hazel. So I ended up for the drafting part anyway, um, I ended up taking a lot of the, the other roles, but Alice popped up about two thirds of the way through. And then we loved her voice. We were just like, again, she brought a little humor and a, and a lot of levity to a dark situation. And she was so opposite of Evie that it was fun, you know, flirtatious and and pretty and fun. And not that ha- um, Hazel, oh, my God, Freudian slip. Not that Evie didn't possess some of those qualities, too, but just a very different personality. So when we were editing, we, we ended up pulling her all the way through the novel. We had to write in a bunch of letters um, from her throughout the rest of the, the book. Um, and then Will is Evie's brother and, and Tom's best friend. And um, he's, he's a cutie pie. You know, all the women love him. He's, he's um, vibrant and, and, again, flirtatious. So, so Will and Alice are almost, not quite, but they're almost like opposite sides of the same coin. And that, you know, they, they just, you can, you can see this, more rich cast of characters by, by including them in, in the narrative there. So, and Will was not much of a writer. So Evie got very, very short little notes from him and not, not very often. So are you done with World War One now, do you think, or do you still have more to say about it? 
I don't think I'll ever be done with it, honestly. Or that that time, you know, sort of that that gilded age, that belly puck era up through the end of World War One. I think there's an infinite trove of stories to be told, you know. Um, but that said, I'm, I'm actually working on something set in 1900 U.S. So I will probably come back to it, I imagine. Um, but but for now, I, you know, Hazel and I are joking around like, well, well, we can retire now. We've told the we've told the the best World War One story we know how to tell, and that's it. <laughs> of course, we're not obviously, but. Right. So um, what would you like readers to take away from last Christmas in Paris? Hmm. Well, a few of the things that I mentioned, which is that it was a really important, even if hard to understand, war in terms of Western civilization. Its ripple effects are still felt today. And uh, I think it's it's a hugely important era. And I think that, you know, both for, for the middle class and for and for the upper class, really, but also very much so for women and um, you know, all of my books and all of Hazel's books focus on uh, women who have something to learn about themselves and, and look to find their own strength in their lives. So I, I would like for readers to take some of that away. And also just that sometimes a good love story gets it done. <laughs> you know, there's nothing like a good love story in the midst of war. Um, and again, we didn't set out for it to be this major love story, but it kind of went that direction, didn't it? It did. Yes, so. it definitely did. So you're incredibly <laughs> prolific. You've got another book coming out in February called The Phantom's Apprentice, right? Which is a retelling of the Phantom of the Opera story. Yes. It's funny you say that, but I think, okay, maybe compared to the, to, it's all, it's all varying degrees. Some authors produce a book every 10 years, some every five. I'm about a two-year girl. Uh, it takes me about two years to really do some good research and to to do the drafting. The draft, that, that first draft for me is is um, always kind of gnarly. <laughs> I have to kind of drag myself through it. it. It's a lot of creative energy and um, and emotionally, I have to remind myself it's okay that it's garbage right now. You're going to work on it. You're going to you're deepen it. You're going to you know do eight other drafts. It's fine. So. It, it really, um, when you write a book and then you're looking for an agent and then you go out on submission, uh, that is a lot of time that passes when you have a finished product. And then say a, a publisher buys it, it's in production for a year. So by the time my first book released, I had turned in another book, um, my second book. I so. Oh, that makes sense. You know, you're, yeah, that's about what it takes me, too. It's like 18 months to two years to actually write the thing and revise it and fix it. It's been going down recently because I'm farther into the series, so the characters are more developed. But, it, yeah, I, I'm, I'm impressed with these people who can turn out books every three months, but it's, <laughs> it's certainly not anything I could do uh, yeah. and do a decent job. I don't know if I'm impressed with that, but... <laughs> <laughs> I think that, you know, books serve a lot of different purposes and there's a lot of different genres. And if, you know, if you're writing a short, light, fairly um, straightforward kind of book that has characters that you know really well already and things like that, then maybe, maybe it'd be a shorter time period, you know, or period of time. But 
I don't know, well-researched historical to do one in more than a year is a bit mind-blowing. Hazel has the same deal. I mean, she had two books written before her first one ever came out. So it looks like she's cranking out books like crazy, but really there's, there's a stagger of a year and a half to two years. This book took us almost two years. Um, the Phantom book took me two and a half years. It's just that they're, they're being released close at the same time. Um, and the one that I'm working on now, it's, it will be a year in January already, and it's nowhere near ready to go out on submission. So I see. Um, I'm well, hoping by sense. next fall, we'll see. And then, it, you know, it depends on how long it takes to sell, and then it'll be another year after that. So it's just kind of one of those things. Mm-hmm. So, so thank you so much for sharing your time with us, and I certainly wish you the best of luck with this project and all of your uh, future projects. Thank you. It was great to be here, and um, I wish you luck on yours as well. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, and today I've been talking with Heather Webb about Last Christmas in Paris, the epistolary novel she co-wrote with Hazel Gaynor. You can find out more about them at www.heatherwebbauthor.com and www.hazelgaynor.com, respectively. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at NewBooksHistFic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also find out more about me, my website, and my books at blog.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about new books in historical fiction. <laughs>